Welcome to the Emergence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry of Emergence Church that exists to equip us to walk as disciples of Jesus by growing in knowledge and in our ability to live wisely in His world. Father, I thank you, Lord, once again for allowing us to come and to discuss Roman Catholicism. And uh, we've got a lot of ground tonight to cover, a lot of things that you've laid on my heart, Father. And I just pray that you would help me to be clear and that you would help my brothers and sisters, Lord, to receive um, these words well, to, to, to learn from them, um, to, to take what is good and to incorporate that into their thinking. And into their witness and into the way that they understand um, these important issues, Lord. Uh, We uh, ask for your blessing also on Rick and his class on Job in Suite 300, and just ask that uh, you would also be with him as he leads your people. And so, Father, we give this time to you tonight and ask for your blessing upon it, as always. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, welcome to week three, Summer Sessions 2023, uh, where I am presenting a Protestant perspective on Roman Catholicism. And uh, let's begin in the same way that we've been starting each evening, by reciting together one of the early creeds of the church. So tonight, we're going to be reciting something called the symbol of Chalcedon. And for those of you who don't know, Chalcedon was the fourth ecumenical council of the church held in 451. Now we've done Nicaea, we've done Constantinople, and they all have wording that we're pretty familiar with. Uh, In this, however, I'd be surprised if anyone's read this in a church. Uh, You'll see how the creeds start to get more and more technical as they're reworked according to the specific errors they're responding to. And specifically, this council, just so you know what you're reading, is responding to Nestorianism, which is the idea that Jesus not only has two natures, right, which he does, a divine and a human nature, but that in him there are two persons, one divine and one human. And thus we have, for the first time in a creed, something that you as, you know, if you are a Protestant, you might be a little wary about, reference to Mary as the mother of God, which to offer the common explanation is actually a statement of what we believe about Jesus. So I don't think it's any reason to not say those words. In fact, I think that's an important thing to affirm about Mary. The other big error opposed at Chalcedon was Eutychianism. The idea that Jesus' divine nature was so thorough, or his, his human nature was so thoroughly overwhelmed by his divine nature that it was compared to like a drop of vinegar in an ocean. And uh, so please stand with me as we recite the symbol of Chalcedon. And again, if the wording sounds strange to you, let me assure you that uh, if you affirm Emergence's statement of faith, you affirm everything here. We then, following the Holy Father's all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, 
truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparately, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the Son, Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Awesome job. All right, you can be seated. I think the microphone only really picks up, picks up my voice, and I definitely messed up one of those, so it's going to sound really weird on the recording, but <laughs> yeah. All right. So just to orient ourselves, the first night I spoke on Sola Scriptura, Tradition and Authority. The second night, I spoke on the papacy. And tonight, the topic is salvation. Next week will be baptism and the Eucharist. Week five will be Mary, the saints and icons. And week six will be purgatory and the canon of scripture. Um, as always, I encourage you to ask me questions midway through and, to the and uh, towards the end or at the end. Uh, but just keep in mind that, again, this is recorded and broadcast for the world to see and that we are generally trying to make sure that our questions are relevant to the topic of each evening. Also, you can feel free to reach out to me directly with any questions that you might have. Now, with that out of the way... We're talking tonight about the Roman Catholic view of salvation, but before we can do that, I want to talk a little bit about the Protestant view of salvation. Now, obviously, that's a little bit tricky because there is no one Protestant view of salvation, and a lot of Protestants don't have a very well-thought-out theology in this respect at least not one that can withstand scrutiny from other people who know their Bibles, but who disagree with them. And so what I want to do first is sketch what I believe to be a sound theology of salvation with particular emphases on where I think is the correct, um, the, the correct view comes in contact with Roman Catholic theology. Okay, so those are going to be the things that I will camp out on a little bit more than others. No doubt, at, uh, at, at, at this point, some of you may be thinking, well, there go those Protestants again, reading the Bible for themselves and just coming up with their own interpretations. Uh, and I want to say a few brief things to that in response. And these are applicable uh, to, that, to that criticism in general, not just as it relates to the doctrines of salvation. So first, every tradition... Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox encourages their faithful to read the Bible. This may not have been true throughout the history of the church. 
It may not have been followed in practice by lay people even today, but it is where all the churches officially stand today. And no tradition has produced an authorized commentary on Scripture telling us what it means. And anyone who thinks that confessions, creeds, church fathers, bishops, popes, doctors of the church, or anything else belonging to sacred tradition give us that is extremely naive about the challenges of biblical interpretation and interpretation of those documents. You often have multiple interpretations of a given passage endorsed in this massive body of literature that is sacred tradition. When Roman Catholics, and the Orthodox as well for that matter, present the biblical evidence for their beliefs, they're doing the same thing that Protestants are doing. I don't know if I've ever encountered a Roman Catholic, including their theologians and exegetes, who argue, the magisterium says this about uh, this passage, and that's what it means. No, the appeal is always to what? Grammar, word meaning, context, contemporary scholarship, precedent within the early church fathers, broader theological considerations, and all the other stuff that Protestants do. And no, they are not simply doing this because they're trying to use arguments that will appeal to Protestants. They're doing it because the church has no definitive teaching on what most scriptures mean. And it's nonsense to argue that an interpretation of a passage is correct simply because you think it supports a definitively defined dogma. Second, Protestants, like Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, read scripture within a tradition There are very few things that I'm going to say tonight that have not been honed by at least hundreds of years of Protestant saints, and many of these things can be found within the writings of the early fathers. We are all accountable to the church. The difference, as I have explained, is that we do not believe that there is an infallible teaching organ within the church. And finally, I just want to say that what I love about being Protestant, one of the things is that it frees us to go where the evidence leads. We're not locked into believing things that have weak or no biblical support, things that there is no evidence that the apostles taught in writing or orally, or that require allegorical or typological interpretations, or non sequiturs as their primary supports. We are free to critique certain views about salvation as they are articulated within Protestant circles if they do not stand up to the light of Scripture, okay? It's a, it, and that's a good place to be. So let's lay the groundwork for a constructive talk about salvation. When we talk about salvation, we are talking about how God saves us from our sins um, and from his, the wrath of his judgment that we deserve because of our sins. Because God loves us, he didn't leave us to perish, but he sent Jesus to come and die on a cross for us. And by so doing, he took the punishment for sin that we deserve, suffering God's wrath instead of us. God then raised Jesus on the third day in victory over sin and death, so that all who are united to him can not only be forgiven, but can receive eternal life and dwell in his presence and enjoy him forever. This is the ultimate expression of God's grace, his unmerited favor lavished upon undeserving sinners. That's the basic sketch. Obviously, more detail could be given, 
including the nature of our glorification, in which we are made partakers of the divine nature, stuff like that. But again, I'm just laying a broad sketch here. But now, not all people in the world experience this salvation. Many will be held guilty for their sin, their sins not having been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so, the very biblical question, what must I do to be saved? What is it that puts me into a state of grace so that I can enjoy eternal life with God? And the answer is faith. This is the first point of departure from Roman Catholicism, which teaches that it is, the ba- that is, that it is at least initially <clears throat> the sacrament of baptism that saves us. Which makes me kind of wish that I talked about baptism first, <laughs> rather than waiting until next week. But I didn't want to change the schedule from what I've been telling you. It would be. Uh, but that can wait because we got plenty to talk about tonight. Just keep that in mind. The good news, though, <clears throat> on the topic of baptism, from a Roman Catholic perspective, is that all validly baptized Protestants have received the salvific grace of baptism, um, which confers upon us remission of original and personal sin, gives us new life in Christ and the Holy Spirit, and incorporates us into the church. Though it doesn't specify of whom it is speaking, Lumen Gentium says the following, which would apply to all validly baptized Protestants. The church recognizes that in many ways she is linked with those who, being baptized, are honored with the name of Christian. Though they do not profess the faith in its entirety or do not preserve unity of communion with the successor of Peter. For there are many who honor sacred scripture, taking it as a norm of belief and a pattern of life, and who show a sincere zeal. They lovingly believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ, the Son of God and Savior. They are consecrated by baptism in which they are united with Christ. I'm going to be addressing the idea, again, that that baptism saves us next week. Of course, that view is called baptismal regeneration, and it is also embraced by some branches of Protestantism, for example, traditional Lutheranism. For now, I want to continue to construct a solid Protestant perspective on salvation. So, we receive salvation when we place our faith in Jesus, but many misunderstand this by thinking that this is nothing else than mental assent. And if you've heard my spiel on this before, I apologize, but this is necessary, right? Um, That if we merely assent, if we merely agree that Jesus died for our sins and was raised, then we are saved. This insufficient faith is the kind that James speaks of, for example, in the famous passage where he tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. In the Bible, however, faith... That kind of faith, the kind of faith that simply assents to doctrine, is not a faith that saves. The kind of faith that saves is more than that. Now, the Greek word in question, okay, and I'll give a few caveats about micro-focusing on Greek word on words in a few minutes. But the Greek word in question, when we talk about faith, is pistis. And it's related verb, pistuo. 
The noun occurs 243 times in the New Testament, and it is always translated, at least in the English Standard Version, as faith, except where once it means assurance, and once it is rendered belief, and twice it means faithfulness. Although a number of scholars maintain that there are a handful of other places in Paul where it means faithfulness, namely the faithfulness of Jesus. The verb occurs 241 times in the New Testament and is always translated, again in the English Standard Version, as to believe, except six times where it means to entrust. Now in salvific contexts, that is contexts that have to do with salvation, the standard scholarly Greek lexicon gives this as the expanded definition. To entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence, believe in, trust, with the implication of total commitment to the one who is trusted. All this is to say that when we come across the concept of faith in the Bible, it is more than intellectual agreement with a set of propositions. It is an act of the intellect and the will where we completely trust in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. And so oftentimes we might be better understood by speaking of trust in Jesus rather than faith in Jesus, since language of faith and especially belief can tend to be understood today as mere intellectual assent. Now more can be said about these words, but for our purposes I think this will do. The point is, that the kind of faith that saves has certain characteristics, and I break them down as four. Number one, it is the result of of, of a supernatural work of God's grace. Number two, its object is Jesus. That is, the one whom we trust is Jesus, and specifically, the core gospel message that he died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. Number three... It endures throughout the life of the believer. And number four, it results in observable fruit in the believer's life, resulting from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Without these elements, any adherence to Christian doctrine or profession of belief does not meet the biblical definition of saving faith. Obviously, the first point here is not something that we can observe per se. Right? Our confidence in the other three is what provides our reason for thinking that the first one has occurred. The result of our faith is salvation, which again is accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection. And it means being saved from our sins and gaining eternal life with God. Uh, this is all over the New Testament, but we will have to be content with just a few passages. So Jesus, to the crowd that followed him after the feeding of the 5,000, says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Peter, to Cornelius and his household, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul and Barnabas to the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
And finally, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, there is a dizzying number of passages in the New Testament that reinforce this, that speak this way. But these are just a few examples that I feel are particularly clear. Now, it should come as no surprise that repentance is also spoken of in the New Testament as a requirement for salvation. It's particularly common in the sermons of Acts. So in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter preaches, and those who are there hear him, and they say, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then... In Acts 3.19, in pretty much the next sermon that is given, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Okay? And I, I take it that Peter is not just forgetting stuff here. Right? It's also common to find repentance language in passages that exhort believers to turn from sin. So, for example, repentance uh, is the desired outcome of the procedure in dealing with a brother or sister who's sinned against you, right? That they would repent. So it's got like an ethical idea uh, there as well. Um, not only as a, like a prerequisite for salvation. The basic meaning of repentance in Greek is the noun metanoia. And uh, the verb metanoeo is to change one's mind. Okay. As with faith... It's possible to conceive of repentance in a very cheap way, such as it means little more than just thinking differently about a matter, right? Oh, I changed my mind. Jesus is, is real. He did rise from the dead. And so also, as with faith, there is a level of sincerity that distinguishes true from false repentance. Now, some Protestants feel uncomfortable with the language of repentance because they sense a tension between it and the notion of salvation by faith alone. And to this, we say two things. Number one, repentance is presented in the New Testament as a condition for salvation. So unless the apostles were wrong when they preached the gospel, this is unavoidable. Number two, and I think most of you will find this more helpful than number one, we need to be careful not to confuse repentance with evidence within, with evidence within the believer's life that repentance has taken place. Okay, so there is repentance, and then there is the evidence of repentance. As with saving faith, it results in observable fruit in the believer's life. But that fruit is not the same thing as the change of mind that produces that fruit. And two passages make this very clear. Matthew 3.8 and Acts 26.20. So John the baptizer says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? The fruit is not the same thing as the repentance. And then Paul, in Acts 26.20, 20, before Herod Agrippa, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance." 
I think it's interesting how similar the wording is there, right? In, in, in keeping with repentance by two different authors, right? And one of them's convey, conveying a, another person's words. So the way to understand the relationship between saving faith and, and repentance is that repentance is an aspect of saving faith. They both refer to the inner change that takes place when a person turns to Christ and is converted. Repentance places the stress on turning from sin and turning to Christ, whereas faith, on the other hand, stresses the content of what must be believed in order to be saved. One can see this in the interchangeability of the terms in Acts. For example, whereas in Acts 2.38, Peter's response to the question, what shall we do is repent and be baptized, in Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas's response is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Unless Peter and Paul are on different page here, uh, I think we will, what we want to say is that they are both essentially saying the same thing. As a quick aside, even though we will treat this in much more detail next week, the mention of baptism in Acts 2.38 deserves a brief comment, right? Repent and be baptized. The best way, <clears throat> spoiler alert, the best way to account for all the New Testament data on baptism is to recognize that baptism is the rite of Christian initiation. It is what you do when you repent, when you trust in Jesus, when you get saved. Okay, sometimes I compare it to the way we think of a sinner's prayer today, right? Like that's when we would be like, he did it, right? Or she did it. Like in New Testament speak, it's baptism. Uh, in the New Testament church, baptism happened immediately, right? You see that at Pentecost. You see it with the Ethiopian eunuch. You see it with the, with the household of Cornelius. I'm just making sure everyone's awake. Uh, you also see it with the Philippian jailer, right? The idea of legitimate believers running around for any significant amount of time without being baptized appears to have been completely foreign to the apostolic ministry. The category of unbaptized believers is, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on anyone's toes here, frankly a scandal that causes a lot of people to get completely lost when confronted with passages like Acts 2. So, the upshot of that, if you're a believer, you better get wet, okay? So, we've got most of the elements in place. The final element that needs to be addressed is the reality of falling away, okay? which is also known as apostasy. Because the New Testament also speaks of the reality that not all people who make credible confessions of faith persevere to the end. In other words, their faith does not meet the third condition of saving faith mentioned earlier. It does not endure throughout the life of the believer. And two, two biblical examples of this will suffice. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of God, uh, the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to repent. 
to, to contempt. Or 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It is possible to walk a long time in apparent conversion, only to abandon the faith and to never return. What are we to make of such situations? Now, one way to answer this question, which we will see is essentially a Roman Catholic position, is that it's possible to truly possess salvation and then to truly lose it such that the one who loses it is no longer a child of God and will suffer condemnation. However, the New Testament goes in a different direction than this. Let me explain. Whatever we say about those who have fallen away, we must hold this up against passages that do teach that true salvation cannot be lost. So, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. To this, we could add Paul's language of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer and acting as both a seal, like, you know, like a seal on a letter, and as a guarantee, which means a down payment or a pledge of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We see that both in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, both of which use both those metaphors. Also noteworthy are Paul's prayers of confidence for believers' perseverance, which he places in the hands of God as well as theological observations, about the nature of God's unconditional election. But really, there are a handful of passages that speak to the reality of falling away and yet provide a remarkably consistent insight into the nature of saving faith and its permanence. Canonically, the first one we encounter is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now check this out. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See that? There's such a thing as believing in vain. Not all faith is saving faith. Okay, but pay attention here to the tenses. And all the passages we're going to be looking at right now work the exact same way. Okay? What happened in the past? You received the gospel, okay? What's going on in the present? 
You are standing in it, and you and by it you are being saved. But then notice this: that that present condition, that that present state that you are in, is dependent on a condition. If you hold fast the word I preach to you, the present dependent on continual action in the future. And if not, then you believed, past tense, in vain. Makes perfect sense of the notion that those who fall away never really had salvation in the first place, or to be more in line with his wording, do not really have it now. Notice how remarkably similar this is to no fewer than four other passages in the New Testament. So Colossians 1.21, another one from Paul. He has now reconciled you, here you have a very clear temporal marker, now, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And there we have it again. If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay? Then we could go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, present tense, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And then, later on in that chapter, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come... Okay, giganamin, that's a past a perfect, okay, to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then finally, with a little bit different language, 1 John 2.19, <clears throat> speaking of the, um, you know, the, the kind of like the opponents that he has in view in 1 John, they went out from us, but they were not of us, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now, what's what's doubly interesting about this is that this, this is four different New Testament authors speaking in remarkably similar ways. So it's not just like a quirk of a way that like Paul words something, right? And they all hold this in common. That a present reality is true if a future condition maintains or obtains, we should say. Okay. The other thing I want to note is another remarkable similarity between them all. Because we might ask the question, well, perseverance in what? Right? If I do what? Because the, the anxiety that I have is like, oh my gosh, that means if I don't kill this sin and just never do it again. Right? Like, is it perseverance in stopping that, 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 you know, some sinful pattern of behavior you have. And certainly sin is relevant to our perseverance in the faith. I don't want to say it's not. But in every one, look what it is that you persevere in. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Hold fast the word I preached to you, 
and he's reminding them of the gospel he preached to them, which he defines as Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised. Colossians 1.21, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, okay? Hebrews 3.6, hold fast our confidence and boasting in hope. And Hebrews 3.14, hold our original confidence firm to the end. The upshot, of course, of all this is that it is appropriate for a believer, okay, and I, I think, I feel pretty strongly about this, and you can do with this what you want, but I would say that it is appropriate for a believer to have varying degrees of confidence in their own salvation depending on their state of heart. And the way that I sometimes phrase it is, sometimes God wants you to be comforted and to know that no matter what, no one can snatch you out of his hand. All right? Whoever comes to him and believes in him, Jesus will raise him up on the last day. And he wants you to rest assured in that. At other times, God might want you to squirm a little bit. Right? Like if I'm making peace with my sin. In fact, look at the way that Paul kind of says it of himself. Okay? This is Paul. Okay? In Philippians 3, we'll start in verse 8. Okay? This is... Indeed, I count everything as loss, okay, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, or that which depends on, uh, yeah, that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I told you it's all over the New Testament, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who, of, of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay? That sounds like a man who's dead set on perseverance. So, a little bit of a recap. We're saved from our sin through faith in Jesus. In particular, his death for our sins and his resurrection. Saving faith is the supernatural work of God's grace. It endures throughout the life of the believer, and it results in observable fruit in the believer's life, which results in turn from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Repentance is a part of that faith, and it is biblically accurate to think of salvation as an event that happened to us at a definite moment in the past, conversion, but it's also biblically accurate to think of salvation as something that continues throughout life. Any questions on what I call 
a solid Protestant view of salvation. Not just because it's mine. I think it's solid. <laughs> All right, yeah. Ed. Sorry, Evan, I'm trying to keep you on your toes tonight. There we go. There we go. Hey, Hi. Ed. Could, hi. Hello. Could you just, um, I almost fell asleep there for a second, but could you, could you just uh, repeat what you just said about continuing the salvation? I yeah. got everything else but that one. Yeah, like the idea of persevering in salvation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah. Um, so salvation, we have a tendency to think of salvation as like a thing that happens to us once, like I got saved, you know? Um, but there's... And that's an accurate way to think of it. Like, that's clearly true. Like, there's a moment of our salvation before which we were not, and now we are. But it's also accurate to conceive of it as, uh, as something that continues throughout our life. Because my perseverance is relevant to my salvation. Okay? So, um, you know, my, I, my struggle for sin is relevant to my salvation, right? Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, you know? So, like, I'm con- like, um, so my concern in my salvation is not merely how much did I mean it back in, like, you know, 1991 or whatever, but, like, how much do I mean it now? How much do I mean? Kind of like, I remember uh, Billy Graham said, like, I was assured of my salvation the day that I was saved. 10 years later, I was more sure of it. 20 years later, I was more sure, you know? So it's, it's that idea. And the, the idea that like the whole Christian life is related to that. It's not disconnected. Yeah. Now, by the way, yeah. I said I was falling asleep. I was actually talking about me. Because <laughs> I just had two hot dogs. Oh, nice. Did you have anything on them? Yes, mustard and big roll. Mustard and big roll. All right. <laughs> uh, hey, um, we're not Catholic here. You don't have to come to confession. Uh, <laughs> all right. I think the idea of actually being thankful about salvation, in effect, a pursuit mm. of acknowledgement that you have not yet received the prize, like yes. Paul says. Yeah. But you're sure, certainly on your way, yeah. and he, he already said he's not going to allow anybody to touch you so that you would fall out. Yeah, yeah. Although you have the choice to fall out if you want to. Mm-hmm. But that seems to be impossible because of how God actually works with you, how he sanctifies you. Yeah, yeah. For anybody that's listening. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it is. It's just, I mean, I think this, this gets us into, like, I guess the 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 way that I tend to think of it is that uh, is that because salvation is a spiritual act of it's an act of God's spirit, right? That is not something that we can see for sure, and there is such a thing as like false fruit, you know, like uh, like think of the parable of the weeds and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And so. is there assurance, if you're growing out of the ground, you just started growing out of the ground, is there assurance for you? Yes, there is. But there's also, it also has to be balanced with the biblical passages about, you know, you don't want to be the shallow soil that, you know, springs up quickly, but because it has no depth, you know, it withers. 
You know what I mean? So like there's contexts in which strong assurance of God is, is, is uh, of God's um, uh, you know, power in your life and power to hold you is appropriate. And I think really that even if even someone is backsliding, that's appropriate. You know, that's how I would encourage them as well. But, um, you know, there's, there's all, depending on where a person is in their walk with Christ and in their fight with sin, you know, there, there might be, uh, I think the Bible gives no comfort for, to unrepentant sinners. You know, so I'm not going to issue those kinds of comfort to like a guy who's cheating on his wife and is like, but it's okay because God, you know, I, I believe in Jesus and, you know, like it's, it, it's kind of takes some wisdom as to know when to apply those assurances and when to maybe say, hey, maybe for us to know how I, I say we're amateur fruit inspectors, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have enough to like know exactly what kind of apple this is, but I know it's an apple and I know, I think it should have this much on it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know exactly how much fruit should be in someone's life, exactly how quickly, but I know there should be some, you know, that's how I, that's how I kind of think of it. You know, my father was Lutheran. Yeah. And, and then my, my um, cousin was Lutheran and both of them said the same thing. They went to church they did. They were very moral people. They certainly believed in Jesus Christ. I don't mm. know about the born again part or the new birth part, but on the other hand, uh, I would ask my dad. I said, "Dad, are, do you know that you're going to be in heaven? You know, before you pass away." And he had the same remark that my cousin did mm. from the R- Lutheran tradition. I would expect, and he said, "Well, I hope so." Yeah, you know, like, and I just wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those end of life things are tricky. They're they're hard, you know. And okay. yeah. Anyway. Thanks. Yeah, uh, definitely. Thank you, Ed. Anita had a question back here. Uh, can you regain uh, salvation a second and third time? Say you met somebody. Uh, in your life that believed from growing up that she had great faith in God, believed in all the doctrines of God, Mm -hmm. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then one drastic thing happened, really terrible. And uh, that person that I'm speaking of uh, lost the faith went really deep, mm-hmm. uh, was head of uh, the prayer ministry in the church, very involved in the church, and gave up everything because she just felt that God failed her in her life. Mm-hmm. And it took a long, long time for this person to recover. Now, if she had salvation in the first part of her life, if she surrendered to God again, and I use the word surrender because I think that's a big word when you're really down in the dumps and you surrender to God, do you attain salvation again? And could it be attained a third time? Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that? Yeah, so I guess on one sense, on one, uh, th- first of all, thank you for that. I know like, 
you've been ministering to this person a lot, you know. Um, and uh, so I think on one level, the answer to that question kind of depends on what you make of, a, of falling away, right? Like, so does the person who falls, so if a person falls away and never comes back, do you say they had salvation and they lost it? Or do you say they never had it in the first place? Now, I argued for the second position that it was never there in the first place if they lost it. For the person who has faith, loses it, and then comes back, I think we have two options. That, uh, so, obviously, if you think you can lose faith and come back, then, yeah. Uh, but, but I think we could say they never really had it the first time, but they had it the second time. Or they never really lost it, but they were in a very dark place of backsliding and struggling with the Lord. Um, now, the Bible does speak of a state that you can... He, I read from Hebrews 6, right? Where a person cannot be renewed to repentance is what it said, is what it says, right? It says that it's impossible in the case of those who have, you know, once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So there, one might say, well, it looks like you can't be resaved or you can't come back. But the thing that I want to emphasize is I want to really stick with what the text says here. Because the problem with this individual is they're not restored to repentance. Meaning that if a person is repentant, that's not them. <laughs> right? If they have repented, if they've fallen away, come back, are making a credible expression of faith in Jesus, then, you know, then I rejoice and say, you know, hallelujah, brother and sister, like, you know, you are a co-heir with me of eternal life. Um, if, they're, if that's the state they're in today, then I affirm that. You know, unless I have some reason for thinking like they're lying or self-deluded or something. But as long as that, that, as long as that you have a good reason to think that repentance has been reached, that faith, saving faith has been reached, then rejoice in that. And then, you know, read a few theology books about what you think was going on before that. Um, but yes, I, I would say that, that, that this individual you're talking of, uh, you have every reason to believe that they know the Lord. Yeah. Hey, Doug. Um, hey. If intellectually you believed you were saved because you were raised knowing, uh, being taught uh, the Trinity and all of that. Mm -hmm which I was, and for me, the only time that the switch, I'll just call it a switch, went off was when I was born again, Yeah. and my relationship with Jesus Christ became very personal. Yeah. So can you uh, talk about the importance of being born again as far as separating those two things, or how, how, how much does it matter, I guess? Well, I mean, I think born again is everything. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, Jesus says in John chapter 3. And yeah, there's, I think you point to an important fact there, right? That you can know a lot about God and not, and not really be born again. And uh, I, I think that the experience that you're describing there illustrates the fact that when someone does come to know the Lord, you usually don't have to like really... You don't have to go looking for evidence, you know, it's usually very apparent. And then, you know, and then, you know, the, 
uh, the Billy Graham thing, right? A couple years later, you have even more reason to say amen. A couple years later than that, and as you persevere, that assurance, I think, grows and grows and grows. But yeah, I mean, the, the new life is a, is a work of the Spirit of God. It's a real transformation. And uh, the, the Spirit of God is not like dead within a person. It causes life, and you see it. You're a different tree when that happens. Yeah. I think we had one more question. Uh, let's do, we'll do two more, and then we're going to get back into the talk. Unless you guys want me to brew some coffee. I got good stuff, right? I got good stuff. Hello. Oh, sorry. There we go. Um, so how should we think of uh, Christians uh, who express a lot of change and express like a very like good ministry on like a lot of like great things, but then after they pass away, then you find out that they were in some grievous sin. And I'm, I'm, one example is like Ravi Zachariah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, on one hand, I guess my, my first thought is we're amateur fruit inspectors. I, meaning that I have serious reasons to doubt someone's salvation. If there's evidence of premeditated, especially on repentant sin, you know, like serious planning to disobey God, like that is, that's always, you know, kind of sticks out to me. On the other hand, I'm an amateur fruit inspector, and so there's, you know, I, uh, may God have mercy on their soul, just like he would have mercy on mine. Let him stand as a warning for me. I'm not above that. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I personally don't, I, I don't really view, it depends on the specific individual, but I'd, I'd be very, I wouldn't be very confident to affirm that that person truly knew the Lord. As a pastor, as someone in ministry whom people come and listen to, you know, I can say that you can go a long time fueling that with pride, you know, and, and, and loving being called, I mean, I, I'm not a doctor, loving being called doctor, you know, and loving being thought of as the, of the wise person in the room, you know, um, a, a, a sick tree can produce that. So, um, yeah, but don't be so quick, Frodo Baggins, to be the one to deal out death and judgment, you know. So that, that's, that's kind of how I, how I think about that. All right, one last question back there. Walt's coming with the mic. He's got hokas on. He can get there quick. I got a pair for running. Highly recommended. Yeah. Hi, I'm Susan. Um, I you just mentioned something about uh, the end of life, um, and I'm thinking about the murderer on the cross that said, "God, don't forget about or remember me." Mm. Um, and so it doesn't, he doesn't go through all these things, you know, individually, um, get on his hands and knees and ask the Lord to forgive him and repent. And so it was just that I work with end of life, um, clients and, um, have some real strong Catholics that I will talk to about the Lord 
and tell them exactly what uh, needs to occur between them and the Lord. And um, I just don't know. Many have dementia. And um, so I, I just have to, I think, believe that it's between, it's between God and their heart. I'm yeah. not in charge of one. But it's hard. It's yeah. hard. It is hard. I've done a lot of nursing home ministry in my day, and I've, I've known that. In seminary, I used to ride my bike into a nursing home and go preach there and uh, kind of try to pastor them. Um, and uh, that is difficult. I, I, I think the thief on the cross is an interesting case, right? I, I mean, I guess I would say had he lived through that, he would have. Uh, obviously, Jesus knows his heart well, and Jesus had a pretty good idea of where he was going that day. Um, but um, yeah, the, the thief on the cross is an interesting case. I mean, had he lived, then I would expect that all these conditions for saving faith, we would have seen them, but none of them is, they also, yes, you also have to live at least five years so we know it's true, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it can be a medium. And sometimes there's a big question mark. I try, on the other hand, I just want to say that I, I do try to be a little bit careful about what to infer from the thief on the cross, right? Because it's an exception which is generally not a good idea to like make rules about, you know? So I don't need to be baptized, for example, because that guy never got dunked. You know, like I wouldn't, I, I don't think that that's a valid way, but absolutely in the situations that you're, you're talking about, like I think you just be, you remind them of the gospel every time you come to them. And, you know, just as with everything, you hope it gets through. And, and as I've been saying in here, like, I think the gospel does exist in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, I think, I think Catholics can be saved. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so you, you pray that if it's possible to pray for stuff that's already has happened, <laughs> you know, I pray to a timeless God. So, <laughs> you know, I think that's valid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Catholic view of salvation, which I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about. And the misunderstanding goes for people who've grown up in the Catholic Church and for, um, you know, Protestants trying to understand it. One thing that I guess I, I don't know if I've mentioned this in here, but one of the things about it is there's something to be said about Jesus saying, let the children come to me because to such belong the kingdom of God, Right? Um, anybody who does not come to me like a child, right? Those statements. Now, I don't think that necessarily means like you got to be like, like dumb or something, right? Like you can't know a lot of stuff. And if so, Jesus is like, oh, go forget a lot of stuff, you know, you know, you read like Paul, you know, we're trying to figure out Paul. He obviously knew a lot of stuff. Jesus obviously knew a lot of stuff. I don't think it's that, but what I guess what I'm getting at is this. If you want to know, like, what are the, what are the core beliefs of, say, emergence? I'll give you a piece of paper with 13 points on it, <laughs> okay? And if you believe that, you can be part of our church, okay? You go into the Catholic church, and here you go, okay? Here you go. And that's not to say that Catholicism cannot be summarized, like, you know, but it's way more complicated than, than 
say, a, a Protestant. And that, now, Protestants have complicated statements of faith as well. Um, although Catholics, it's a little bit bigger of a deal if you don't affirm some of the, some of the, the dogmas. But I think it's very easy, especially since people grow up in it. It's cultural. Um, maybe the, their time of catechesis is not a time when they're particularly interested in the faith. You know, where you end up with a lot of people who are confused, who hear some of the, this, like some of the nuances but don't hear them as nuances, you know. Um, you know, maybe they're only there because their parents make them go. Maybe they're only there because the nuns will be mad at them or, or you know. And, uh, and, and, and not only that, but you've got teachers. A lot of times they're lay teachers who under, don't, maybe don't have a great understanding themselves or maybe aren't that experienced in teaching. Could be a lot of different reasons. But, like, it's a high bar to understand Roman Catholic theology. Um, you've, I mean, just having, I, I did a lot of reading in preparation to this. And I've, I've blown out my book budget for like a year just buying Catholic books. And, um, and like, you've got the scriptures, which you can't interpret without the magisterium of the church. You've got the councils, and which you can't interpret without the magisterium of the church. You've got the sacred tradition, church fathers, pretty much anyone who's written since Jesus was raised, um, you can't interpret without the magisterium of the church. Then you've got the magisterium of the church that you can't interpret without the magisterium of the church. So you need Catholic theologians, doctors of the church, and they don't agree on what the magisterium teaches, Okay. And you're going to teach this to like a six-year-old who's, you know, trying to make communion? Um, and like, it's, it's understandable why people misunderstand it. And all that to say, um, you know, there's, there's parts of it that I still don't get. Um, but here, here, so I think we'll go straight to the, doc, the documents themselves. So this, we're going to look at the Council of Trent's Decree on Justification. Okay, um, this the Council of Trent. If you don't know, is uh, at least this particular part of it is uh, 1547, um, and uh, this is from the sixth session. This, this is the council that is held at least in part in response to the Protestant Reformation. So, <clears throat> first you get you know characteristically heavy-handed statement like this: the council strictly forbids and henceforth. Um, that henceforth anyone dare to believe, preach, or teach anything contrary to what is determined and declared in this present decree. All right? So that's kind of like how they preface it. That's from the introduction, the uh, foreword. So then picking up in chapter 3, I, I've just picked some what I think are some helpful things here. For as truly as men would not be born unrighteousness, unrighteous if they were not born children of Adam's seed... Since it is because of their descent from him that in their conception they contract unrighteousness as their own. Notice the heavy emphasis there on original sin. Likewise, they would never be justified if they were not reborn in Christ. For it is this rebirth that bestows on them, through the merit of his passion, grace by which they become just. Okay, so, okay. You know, you've got justification here, which, of course, is a very New Testament concept. 
Justification happening by the grace of God, by the merits of, of his passion. Okay. Um, next up, in these words, a description is outlined of the justification of the sinner as being a transition from the state in which a man is born, a son of the first Adam, to the state of grace and adoption as sons of God through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. After the promulgation of the gospel, this transition cannot take place without the bath of regeneration, by which they mean baptism, or the desire for it. So if you die on the way to the baptismal, God's not like, eh, sorry. Um, As it is written, unless one is reborn of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of course, they're citing John chapter 3. So you've got baptismal regeneration here, right, which we will talk a little bit more about next week. Um, and um, this concept of a baptism of desire, okay? So that is, uh, which kind of like, I think, maybe softens a commitment to baptism, like you're only sa- saved if you're, you go, go into the water. Like, it's actually wanting to be baptized if you kind of think about it. But um, no, I'm not going not gonna, to, you know, uh, dwell too much on that. Otherwise, like it kind of sounds, you know, if you swap out like baptism for placing your trust in Jesus, okay, because you've got stuff in there like faith and grace and stuff. And so now now let's go on to um, paragraph five. This council moreover declares that in adults, the beginning of justification must be attributed to God's prevenient grace through Jesus Christ. That is to his call addressed to them without any previous merits of theirs. Okay? So they do not believe that you can earn your salvation. They do not believe, or at least that you earn the initial state of salvation. Thus, those who through their sins were turned away from God, awakened and assisted by his grace, are disposed to turn to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. Now that's going to become a little bit clearer when we talk a little bit more about what, how they're defining justification here. But um, notice you also have the concept here of prevenient grace. This is also something that's prominent in Arminian theology, if, you're, if you've heard of that. Um, free will theology, like basically the idea that if you want to emphasize the free will of man a lot, as Catholics do, then if you don't want to be Pelagian, which is a formal heresy, you have to say that you can't actually choose God unless God gives you the grace to do it. And so what they say is he gives it to everyone. Everybody gets this grace. So, okay, we're actually... um, But the concept of provenient grace, interestingly, is developed by Augustine, who is no no Arminian, (laughs) um, who taught that the human will is prepared by God. That's what provenient means, to receive God's grace, and man cannot respond to the gospel without it. Um, One way of summarizing provenient grace is that God reaches out to each person offering a personal relationship and ensuring each one a valid opportunity to respond. And again, here you have a very heavy theme in Catholic theology, the cooperation with the grace of God. Adults are disposed for that justice when, awakened by divine grace, they conceive faith from hearing and are freely led to God, believing to be true what has been divinely revealed and promised, especially that the sinner is justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When understanding that they are sinners and turning from the fear of divine justice, which gives them a salutary shock, 
to the consideration of God's mercy, they are raised up in hope, confident that God will be merciful to them because of Christ, and they begin to love God as the source of all justice and are therefore moved by a certain hatred and detestation for sin, that is, by that repentance which must be practiced before baptism when finally they determine to receive baptism, to begin a new life, and to keep the divine commandments. Okay, so you've got repentance here. You've got, um, you know, a desire to, to uh, you know, kind of like the beginning of stirrings in your heart. And um, uh, notice also that we, we, we get a, a heavy dose here of the fruit of true salvation, right? They begin a new life and keep the divine commandments. So that's part of what we might say is the fruit of righteousness. When Jesus comes into our hearts, he, his spirit causes us to be righteous and to keep the commandments of God. And then in chapter 7, this disposition of, or preparation is followed by justification itself, which is not only the remission of sins. Now, this is important, okay? Justification, which is not only the remission of sins, but the sanctification and renewal of the interior man through the voluntary redemption, uh, reception of grace and of the gifts, whereby the unjust man becomes just and from an enemy a friend that he may be an heir in hope of eternal life. Okay, so if I can translate for a minute. In Roman Catholic doctrine, and I think this is a cause for a lot of confusion, justification incorporates what you probably think of as sanctification. That is, the progressive increase in holiness and fruits of our salvation that are due to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Um, they even use that, and notice they even used sanctification that way, right? Sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Like that's what we would say sanctification is. But they would say sanctification is part of justification, okay? Um, now, I also, I probably won't, won't say this now, but so, so again, if you, ask a, if you ask a Catholic who knows the stuff, what is justification? They'll say, well, the justification that you Protestants believe in, right? Like you believe in Jesus and you get saved, that we call initial justification. But as, uh, but then God continues to give you justifying grace, meaning grace that makes you into a just person, a righteous person, because that's what just means. That's what righteous means. You see? And that's justification too. Okay? Now, uh, I do. I want to put a little bit of a caveat in here. That one way, that thing that we have to be a little cautious of when doing theology is saying, I'm going to look for every occurrence of a word in the, Bi in the Bible, and that's going to tell me all that I need to know about that concept. And if I don't see that word there, it's not talking about that concept, right? There's no rule that every time the Bible talks about getting saved, it's going to say the word justification, Okay? And even sometimes like words get stuff attached to them that they often don't mean in the Bible. So interestingly, sanctification, right, which we usually think of as growing in holiness, most often in the Bible refers to positional sanctification. Like Paul telling the whole Corinthian church, you know, you, uh, to the saints who are in Corinth, sanctified in Christ Jesus. 
okay? And then he's about to write 1 Corinthians to him, <laughs> you know? Um, or in chapter 6, when he's like, you were justified, you were sanctified, right? Because all sanctified means is made holy. And that could mean when you were regenerated and baby Christians, or it could mean, as it sometimes does in the New Testament, what we think of when it's sanctification. So we have to be a little bit careful about being too nitpicky about what we call certain things. But you need to call things things, right? You need to have words for them in order to communicate. And in dialogues with Protestants and Roman Catholics, misunderstanding how one is using the term sanctification, for example, or just, especially justification, can really mess you up and it can cause you to talk past each other. Because pro- So Protestants, what's the typical Protestant understanding of justification? That it is a forensic legal act of God where God declares on the basis of Christ's free offer of forgiveness and faith in him, he declares a sinner uh, righteous, just, right? It's like a speech act. It's very much that courtroom metaphor. We're not guilty even though technically you are guilty, God, you know, I guess we could say sees Christ instead of you. Or he, uh, he some would say, imputes Christ's righteousness to you. Or he, uh, sub, you know, you, you might think of it as, as uh, you know, the uh, substitutionary atonement, right? You've sinned and you are objectively guilty, but God, on the basis of what Jesus did for you and because you are in him, declares you not guilty, declares you in the right Okay. Um, Catholics, as I said, understand justification as a moral act of God in which God makes you a just person. And the more you cooperate with God's grace and do acts of charity, the more justified you become because of, and because of this basic disagreement of terminology, we often talk past each other. Um, All right, continuing in Trent here, when the apostle says that man is justified through faith and gratuitously, that is by grace, those words are to be understood in the sense in which the Catholic Church has held and declared them with uninterrupted unanimity, namely that we are said to be justified through faith because faith is the beginning of man's salvation, right? So a Catholic can say we are justified by faith because that's how you Uh, initially accept the grace of baptism. Uh, The foundation and root of all justification, without which it's impossible to please God and to come into fellowship of his sons. And we are said to be justified gratuitously because nothing that precedes justification, neither faith nor works, because God gives you faith, just as he gives you the ability to work, merits the grace of justification. You see it again? They do not believe you are earning your salvation by doing good works. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, the same apostle says, grace would no longer be grace. All right, now I want to note that technically, Protestants are more correct with respect to the way justification tends to be used in the salvific passage in the New Testament. So again, justification, we maintain, is a legal status that Paul imparts to a sinner on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, The fact, in fact, the verb to justify, which in Greek is dikaiao, in Paul, 
pretty much always means this, except perhaps in 1 Timothy 3.16. So consider, for example, here's a particularly clear example of it. Romans 8.33-34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Um, and so here you see it is God who justifies. Okay? Notice you've got a courtroom metaphor here. Right? This is, this is very legal sounding. And notice also what is given as the antonym, right? the opposite of justifies. What is it? Condemn, right? Very legal language here. Another particularly strong passage is Romans 4, 3 through 8, where Paul speaks of justification as a gift that happens to people apart from works. Okay? He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, God counts his faith as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Okay, so you've got several legal concepts here. The legal concept of counting or reckoning faith as righteousness okay instead of your own righteousness you do this and i count you as righteous uh, this this right standing this righteousness is apart from works and sin instead of being remedied with righteous works is not counted against the blessing the blessed man okay again very legal moreover it is widely acknowledged that Paul's concept of justification is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Be, big surprise there, right? So in the Septuagint, what's the Septuagint? All my sessions peeps should know this. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, okay? The Greek verb to justify, which is dikaiao, consistently translates the Hebrew verb tzedakah, which is used overwhelmingly in legal contexts. So here are some examples. You've got Deuteronomy 25.1, which says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, sounds pretty legal to me, um, then acquitting, okay, hits diku in the Hebrew and in the Greek, dikaiososin, the innocent and condemning the guilty. Notice the idea of acquitting, okay? That's the word right there. Um, Isaiah 5.23, it accuses, you know, the unjust people of Judah, you know, for being, having twisted justice. And what do they do? They acquit. And here we have it again. Matzdiku in the Hebrew and in the Greek, dikayuntes, the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. That's what they do, okay? Again, very, very legal, Okay? And then finally, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous for I will not acquit. Atzdik in Hebrew and in Greek, dikaioses, the wicked. And if you know a little bit of Greek, you know that that's actually the second person of dikaios, dikaio. Uh, that's just because it's a 
funky translation, but it still is the same concept, okay? Um, so you see here, right? Like the word that Paul uses in his literature, this is how it's used in the Hebrew Bible. This is how it's used in the Jewish Bible of his time, okay? Um, this is not to deny that Paul and especially other New Testament writers use the concept of justification in a more moral sense in some passages. The question, though, is not whether the word has to always mean this. The question is, what does it mean in passages that speak of gaining a right standing before God, the spiritual condition of conversion from which a righteous life then follows because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Nor is it to give the impression that the concept of having a right standing with God is restricted to places where the actual word of justification, justification or its cognates occur, right? So as I said before, sometimes the concept is there, but the word is not. But it's important to realize this stuff because it exposes the error that one encounters in a lot of anti-Protestant Roman Catholic apologetics, such criticisms usually run afoul of critiquing only deficient Protestant understandings of salvation, which I sought to correct in the first half of the talk. But a greater problem with the Roman Catholic view of salvation has to do with the sacrament of penance, okay? So again, we could go back and forth about like, you know, you're saved by grace. You know, they believe you receive grace through the sacraments. Is that adding to faith? Is that an act of faith? You know, you can go back and forth all day till you're blue in the face with that. Um, but I think the more serious error, and maybe it depends on what you think about the first one, but uh, at least as serious of an error is the idea of the sacrament of penance, which is addressed in chapter 14 of the Council of Trent. Those who through sin have, forfe- have forfeited the grace of justification, so you've lost your salvation, Okay, they had received, can be justified again when awakened by God, they make the effort to regain through the sacrament of penance and by the merits of Christ the grace that they have lost. This manner of justification, and at, now at that, at that point, you know, all right, maybe, uh, I mean, you know, like there are Protestants who believe you can lose your salvation, okay, and I think, but notice it's, you're not, it's not through, it's not just, they're not just saying through repentance and faith, right? Renewing your relationship. It's through the sacrament of penance that this happens. The, and it must be through the sacrament of penance, which actually kind of like makes a little bit of a problem with them saying, hey, you Protestants are all, bap- are all baptized validly. Come on in, right? Because if you've committed a mortal sin as a Protestant, I don't go and confess to a priest, Right? Okay, so that's a little bit of a problem there, which I, I think makes, you know, the claim that Protestants are actually like kind of like wayward brothers in Christ a little bit disingenuous among Catholics. But uh, this manner of justification is the restoration of the sinner that the Holy Fathers aptly called the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck of lost grace. And by the Holy Fathers, they mean Tertullian. Okay, for Christ Jesus instituted the sacrament of penance for those who fall into sin after baptism. When he said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Hence, it must be taught that the repentance of a Christian after his fall into sin differs vastly from repentance at the time of baptism, right? Which we all just read about. 
It includes not only giving up sins and detesting them or a broken and contrite heart, which, you know, we would say is what repentance looks like, but also their sacramental confession or at least their desire to confess when a suitable occasion will be found and the absolution of a priest. Okay? Now, this uh, statement then goes on to uh, also include within penance other pious exercises such as fasting and almsgiving and prayer. So the idea here is that salvation is lost when mortal sins are committed. So you know in Catholicism, some sins are mortal and some sins are venial. Um, and if you're wondering, which makes us ask, right, if you're trying to be a good Catholic, like, well, what are mortal sins? Like, that sounds really bad. If I'm losing my salvation with these things, I want to know what they are. And so Trent, in chapter 15, um, it doesn't really elaborate very much on it because it's already there in the sacred tradition a little bit, but it lists uh, the, the stuff from First. Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. So this is one of those passages where Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, and the way that they that Trent phrases it is those who are immoral, adulterers, sodomites, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and robbers. Okay, uh, you'll also find places in Catholic literature where some of these other, Paul talks like this three times in his letters. He says it also in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says it also in Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, where he lists some sins and then talks, says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God or something like it if you do these things. Um, uh, so, um, but I think it's important here that those, those passages do not really support the Roman Catholic doctrine that you lose your salvation for these things and then you regain it through being absolved through a priest. Now, obviously, it doesn't go all the way to explain that mechanism, but I don't even see how they're relevant to it, right? Because what does Paul say about it, about these things? It says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you do them, okay? Um, and so... How do Catholics deal with that, right? Like if you do it, because there's lots of Catholics who do those things. There's lots of, Christ, of uh, Protestants who do the, those things, right? So the, they, you have to answer the question in the same way, okay? Uh, that, that, well, the, what it means is that they're outside the character of a person who's, a king, who's truly a child of God, okay? Um, because Paul's say, he's not saying uh, if you're a child, um, you're, you're gonna, you can't inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things. Uh, but if you do do them and you go to a priest and receive absolution, then, all right, I guess you can do them technically. You know, no, he says you can't, okay? So how do we, we both have to answer it the same way, that they're out of character. If your life is characterized by these things, you have real reason for concern. So, in a manner of speaking, then, this kind of sin is also dealt with the same way in Roman Catholicism as it is in Protestantism, repentance and forgiveness, uh, right? Because even if you're going to say, okay, you commit these things, you're not a child of God, well, what do you have to do? You have to receive forgiveness, right? And that's, that's what we would say. If, if I go out and I'm a, let's say I'm a swindler, I go swindle someone, I lose my grace, Right? I've got to repent and seek God's forgiveness. And so it's the mechanism of repenting and seeking forgiveness. So a Catholic cannot point to like 1 Corinthians 6 and be like, ah, oh, you see, 
Mortal sins, you need confession for a priest. It doesn't, it, it doesn't prove what they think it proves. Um, now, so what is a mortal sin? So the, the catechism of the Catholic Church says that for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must be met. So you better pay attention. Okay, mortal sin is sin whose object is grave matter uh, and which is committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So grave matter, full knowledge, deliberate consent. Okay, uh, so grave matter, if you look in the catechism and... Uh, won't go there right now in interest of time. It basically says that the, anything that's in the Ten Commandments, okay, and especially stuff that Jesus repeats, okay, so stuff that's serious. Anybody ever break a Ten Commandment after becoming a Christian? Okay, and have you done it with full knowledge, meaning you know that it's against the law of God to do it, and you're going to do it anyway, okay? And deliberate consent. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing anyway. If you do that, that is a mortal sin. Okay. Now, according to canon law, okay, Catholics have to go to confession at least once a year. Okay, and they have to confess, quote, in number and in kind, all mortal sins. Okay, and they also, and then they go and they talk about how scrupulosity is like being overly obsessive. Well, if I lose my salvation and I have to confess in number and in kind all the times that I have committed a grave sin, okay, that with, with uh, in full knowledge that it's sin and, and with deliberate consent, like I'm going to need some time <laughs> and I'm going to need a long notebook, okay? Um, and now, of course, just that it's inconvenient isn't, a, isn't like an actual objection to it, right? But, like, but that is what is required here, all right? Um, but again, I think, I think we need to ask, too, of this, what is the warrant for thinking that there are some sins that can cause true Christians to lose their salvation, okay? Again, apostasy is a reality, but is that really how it works? Or, or was it in those passages, what was it that we were to persevere in? We we're per- to persevere in our faith, right? Like what Hebrews says, sin hardens our heart towards God, okay? But the unbelief we have is what causes us to fall away from the living God. So even if you think you're losing your salvation, what is the biblical warrant for saying that some sins, if they meet this criteria, then you're out, Okay, Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, so I know I've got this slide coming up. Let's go to the next one here. Um, So here is here is the warrant for thinking that. Uh, And and you tell me how firm this is. If uh, this is from the book of first John, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin and uh, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Super clear? This is a really opaque passage. This is not the kind of passage that you want to say, "All right, here's how salvation works." Right? Like here's here 
And it's the only passage that talks, I, I know like um, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about people who are disregarding communion, who have, some of you have died for this, right? Again, like, like, holy cow, can we not have it a little bit clearer, right? Not only that, but like, if he is speaking about mortal sins here, do we say of people who commit mortal sins that we shouldn't pray for them? Is that, right? Does that look like it, sound like it's talking about a certain class of, of sin that, like breaking the Ten Commandments? Like, you know, I, like I, I heard like that, that Walt, uh, you know, uh, bore false testimony against his neighbor. Let's pray for him. No, don't. Haven't you ever read First John? Like, it is a remedy, also, is a remedy that lead, for sin that leads to death spoken of here, confession to a priest or absolution? Do you see anything like that there? Like, if that's how you get back in, don't you think it would be important for it to be somewhere in the Bible that that's how you're supposed to do it? Like, I know some people will be like, oh, that's an argument from silence. Well, like, some arguments from silence are kind of compelling, such as here's the mechanism by which you lose salvation. I'm not going to tell you how to get back in. Okay, um, and by the way, most likely in this passage, sins that lead to death are those committed by a, by an unbeliever. I think that that's what what this passage is talking about. Um, but whatever it is, like, just saying, like, here's a super ambiguous passage that's going to support our like a central pillar of probably, aside from baptism, the most important sacrament as far as your salvation is concerned. It's very, very weak textual report, uh, textual support. Uh, what is the, what also, what is the warrant for thinking that confession to a priest followed by his absolution and whatever penance he gives absolves one from such sins? Can you think of a New Testament passage that says that or anything like it? So the one that you might go to is John 20, 21 through 23, okay? Jesus said to them again, this is, of course, after his resurrection. He's speaking with disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld, okay? Now, now, this, of course, is the passage, and actually we saw it in, the, in the, that passage from the Council of Trent that we read earlier, right? This is the passage that's used in support of the idea that you go to a priest who has this power to absolve you of sin. First thing I want to note about this is, um, you know, and perhaps you can judge how, you know, good the discussion was uh, a week ago, two weeks ago. Notice that that relies very heavily, it presupposes very heavily the Roman Catholic understanding of apostolic succession. So even if we think that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, have we found yet a valid place that legitimizes the idea that that authority is passed on to their successors? Um, that is something that cannot be, cons- uh, that, that cannot be uh, simply assumed. And as I said then, you keep your eye on that target and don't take it off. Until that is demonstrated, there's no reason for thinking that apostolic succession is a thing, okay? Secondly, to consider, the post-resurrection community of disciples, okay? I know when we think of, like, you know, the, the days after Jesus was raised from the dead, like, it's just the 11 up there, right? But 
that includes others outside of the 12. Okay, so for example, in Luke 24, 33, on the road to Emmaus, where you have Cleopas and the unnamed disciple on the road, right, and Jesus appears to them, they go back to the upper room to the 11 and those who were with them. So whatever Jesus is doing here, we have good reason to think that it's not just done for the, for the, uh, the, the 11, okay? Um, I think what we, we, what we also want to say is that it makes a lot more sense to say that this is tied with the commission to preach the gospel, through which forgiveness of sins is granted. So what is being given here is the power to give assurance of forgiveness to the penitent and to deny it to the impenitent. Jesus says to them in uh, John 9.41, okay, this is a passage where the, the Pharisees, this is the, the guy who's been healed, uh, he's, he was blind, Jesus did the thing with spit and mud and put it on his eyes and go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is a fascinating passage. And, uh, and he comes back seeing, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus eventually comes up to the guy who's now been put out of the synagogue, and he's like, um, and, he, and he's like, you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Right? He's ready to go. And Jesus tells him, uh, for this reason I was sent into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And, you, and the Pharisees, who are apparently within earshot of this, are like, are we also blind? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Notice here, the same thing. Your sin remains, okay? So that authority of being able to declare that kind of thing is being passed on to the disciples. Um, Notice also here that the objects, the, 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 those who are receiving forgiveness or it's being withheld are, 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 uh, are not individuals, but classes. Those to whom, uh, those whom you say this and those whom you withhold it from. But then also, if we assume that human beings are being given the authority to forgive sins, which of course, thus far in scripture only belongs to God, Luke 5.21, are we also saying that they are being give, given authority to withhold forgiveness? Okay, uh, Leon, Leon Morris makes this point in his commentary on John. I do not think that this verse teaches that any individual Christian ministry has the God-given authority to say to a sinner, I refuse to forgive your sin. They are retained. Okay, But unless this can be said, the words about forgiveness cannot be said. The one goes with the other. The final two examples, and I won't be long about these, are with Peter. So we are, here we have the first pope, okay? Uh, pope Peter, okay, um, in the book of Acts. And uh, in chapter 5, or let's go to chapter, let's think chapter 8 first, right? The gospel has come to the Samaritans, okay? Uh, Philip has been there, uh, and, and there's a guy among the Samaritans, named Simon the Magician. Okay, he's got the same first name as Simon Peter. And uh, he believes and he's baptized. And then the apostles come, and Peter and, and Peter and John in particular, and they lay their hands on the Samaritans, and they receive the Spirit. 
And then Simon goes up to him and he's like, he offers him money and he's like, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter say? What does the first Pope say to him? Does he say, uh, I, I absolve you of your sin? Or like, does he say, go to somebody whom I've appointed as a, as a priest who's got my apostolic succession and No, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore. Here's what you need to do. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He doesn't try to bring a confession out of him so that he can respond with absolution and say, well, Jesus told me if I forgive your sins, you're forgiven. So let's do it. Likewise, there's another episode like that in Acts, Acts 5. What's going on there? Everybody, Barnabas is like, hey, I got an idea. Let me sell my my, my property, give it to to the church. And a bunch of people start doing that. And then Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, are like, hey, let's do that too. Okay, and but they actually keep some of it for themselves, but they tell everybody that they are giving all of it. Okay, so it's like it's the lying, right? It's not like God's going to kill you if you don't like, you know, give give if you sell a house and don't give a hundred percent to the Lord, right? It's the lying about it, right? And likewise, there one might think, and again, it's a little bit of an argument from silence, but if this is the first pope who's been given the authority to to absolve sins. Okay, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? Are they told to repent and confess of this? How are they to deal with their sin? No, God decides to make an example of them and they are struck down. Okay, so what do we have with this? And I'll close by saying this. What do we have with this idea of the sacrament of penance? You have the idea that there are certain sins that are mortal and they take you out of the grace of God. And if you die in, in that state, you are just as, you're just as bad of a state as if you never believed. You go to hell, okay? Um, but the way to deal with them is that you have to go to a priest, tell him what those sins were in number and in kind, and then he has the power to absolve you, okay? Again, no passage in Scripture put, clearly teaches any element of that, let alone puts it together, and yet this is, the, this is how you deal with sin that you've probably committed like 12 of them today, okay? That's what I find to be a huge problem with the Roman Catholic concept of salvation. And so while, you know, I think a, a, you know, a, a full-blooded, robust doc, uh, Protestant doctrine of salvation can you know, dialogue constructively with Roman Catholics. Like, look, we both believe we're saved by the grace of God. We both believe we're saved by faith and not by works. We both believe that salvation will result in holiness and that we will become, sure, more just people as the result of God's grace and stuff. Um, but when it comes to how you actually deal with sin in the life of the Christian, that's where I think the starkest, the starkest and clearest point of disagreement is. And that's the part in which I, I don't, um, I don't see very strong evidence at all for in the Catholic tradition. All right, you guys probably know what I'm about to say. I see the time. So if you've got to go, thanks for staying an extra 15 minutes.
But if you want to stick around and ask some questions, hey, I'm down with that. I actually just have a comment because I've never read or even heard this Trent Council. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, most of it's encouraging. It, it teaches what I would believe as a Christian and mm -hmm. what emergence would believe. But yet I know many Catholics that likely don't know that at all, don't aspire to it. And if I ask them whether they're practicing Catholics who go to church and even ones that do go, they may have not read that. And I ask them, well, how do you go to heaven? And it's always, you believe in Jesus that he died and you're a good person. Mm -hmm. So they, that doesn't line up with the yeah. Trent Council yeah. at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, some thoughts. Uh, so, yeah. first of all, it's not, it's not hard to see why, like, people misunderstand it. Like, those paragraphs that I read, like, there's definitely, like, some, for the unsuspecting traveler, there are definitely some, some tripwires in there, you know, where stuff is said and you're like, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that mean? You know, so there's a lot of good stuff about God's grace and what Christ has done for us. And a lot of Roman Catholic documents are written very beautifully. Like, I love the way the catechism begins. It begins by like, may God, something like, may God use us to bless any who possess the freedom that is worthy of the name, you know? And I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful way to put it, you know? And there's a lot of stuff like that. But then there's, there's stuff where you're, it's like it's good until it's not, you know? And it, and it makes good sense until it's not. But then also, uh, I, I don't know, I mentioned briefly last week about how slippery some of the language is, okay? And how it can actually accommodate a variety of different views. And Roman Catholic theologians are not always, or often not, in agreement on what some of these things are. So, for example, if you say, um, I, uh, how do you go to heaven, right? Um, maybe they say, I'm baptized, and then I try, I, I, I try to follow the commandments of God, okay? Well, in a sense, that's kind of what we do, you know? Like, we, we do try to follow the commandments of God, do you not? Is that not part of your sanctification, and is your sanctification not part of your justification, you know, and so like the language can be used very, very slippery and it can sometimes be very difficult to kind of like nail down exactly what you're being told because terms are just used in different ways. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I sometimes find that, that, that quite challenging um, in, in reading and in dialoguing with Catholics. But then also what I said earlier about like, you know, it's, it's, this is hard stuff and it's not, and somebody who's not, who's learned it as like, you know, somebody who's only mildly interested in what the church has got to say, there's no wonder why they don't have their head around what's declared in the Council of Trent. And the councils aren't getting any shorter either. <laughs> so... Is confessing uh, your sins to a priest a law in the Catholic Church, or is it something that people could just go to church to do? Confessing to a preach? To uh, a priest? Pre yeah. Uh, is it something that, what do you mean, like that only is Catholics it, can do? or can, I mean, like, like, is it a law in the Catholic Church? Oh, is it a law? To? Oh, yeah, you have to do it. You, you have to be in good standing with the Catholic Church. You have to do it. I think it's at least once a year. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so you have to do it. And by the way, like the New Testament does say confess your sins one to another. 
I probably want to mention that as well. You know, so like confession is good. And there's being as charitable as possible. There's something spiritually beneficial about like if I'm tempted with a sin and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to have to confess that to Ed on Tuesday. I might think twice about doing it, you know, more so than if I just was like, yeah, Lord, please forgive me. You know, like there's something about having a regular pattern of confession that is beneficial to holiness. But what do you think that confession is actually doing is the problem. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. You went to confession once. Um, So confirmation, is that a Catholic's version of being born again? Is uh, no, so baptism is when you're born again. But they do that as babies. Yeah, yeah. Well, baptism. So well, that's one of the, the problems choice. that that. Right. So we'll get that's into a little week. bit of that next week. Yeah, <laughs> but um, essentially, you know, obviously, there's Protestant denominations that affirm infant baptism, which I disagree with. But I think you really get in problem. But you know, there are there there is a biblically faithful way to hold that position that it's legitimate to baptize infants. Okay. I don't agree with it, again, but, you know, it, it, it can be biblically argued, right? Uh, the problem is when you combine that with baptismal regeneration, then I think you get in a lot of problems, uh, specifically with, like, you know, New Testament evidence about what baptism is, right? Because if you think you're saved by, because it's like, how are we going to say then we're saved by faith if we're saved by baptism and infants are bapti- being baptized, Right? Whereas like a reformed person who baptizes infants like a Presbyterian might baptize infants, but he's not saying this is saving them. Right? And he's not saying that they're exercising, you know, like, like they're able to deal with the, the passages that talk about salvation by faith, I think, a lot more adequately than a Catholic is who, who thinks that. And there's actually one of the Catholic theology books that I read um, uh, this past year talked about how there is some debate within the Catholic Church as to whether or not to really retain the, or maybe they can't get rid of it because it's such a part of sacred tradition, but really try to start discouraging infant baptism because it leads to a lot of people with false assurance. You know, I, well, I was baptized as a child, and so, and is, I think, so I think there's an acknowledgement that infant baptism within the Catholic Church combined with baptismal regeneration um, it causes a lot of problems and is not pastorally very wise. So maybe a movement to see like, what can we do about this a little bit? Maybe we shouldn't be baptizing infants so much. So a question um, when you talk about salvation um, with God drawing you, no one can come to the Father except through me. And then you speak about perseverance. You spoke about it in what you have to do. But I wouldn't want to leave with any confusion about the fact that that perseverance also comes through God's grace. Absolutely. I haven't heard anything about that. So yeah, yeah. Could no, you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, that's good. That's good that you, that you remind me to, to mention something about that. Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I think probably my favorite passage on that is where Paul uh, talks, I think it's in Philippians 2, Philippians 3, where he, he talks about like how I worked harder than any of, 
any others, yet it was not I, but the grace of God in me, right? So on the one hand, he works really hard, and we know Paul works really hard, but on the other hand, it's not, he's like, it's not even me doing it, though. It's the grace of God in me. So it's kind of like two blades of a scissor, perhaps we could think of it as. Yeah, that's how, that's how I think we want to say that, what we want to say. So thank you for helping me not affirm heresy or anything. Uh, <laughs> so you mentioned that um, the Catholics believe that if you die on the way to baptism, with the desire to be baptized, you're mm-hmm. still saved. Yeah, same with confession too. That was about, I was about to ask that. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you fall into mortal sin and then you're on your way to confess and you die, yeah. that still applies. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, that's definitely, that's definitely. Okay, yeah, so, um, all right, points for me right now. So the Council of Trent Decree on Justification, chapter 14, okay, Um it includes not only giving up sins and detesting them or a broken and contrite heart, but also their sacramental confession or at least the desire to confess them when a suitable occasion will be found and the absolution of a priest. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, just quick question uh, towards like the end when we were looking um, at some of like the Council of Trent uh, decrees you're saying that it, uh, or it said, uh, if you forfeit justification, there's this ability to be justified again through sacrament of penance. But mm-hmm. is it just mortal sins that constitute as, uh, like this forfeiting of penance, or is there something else? And is the definition of mortal sin, like how you outlined it, what they're referring to? Because it's done. There's a lot that falls in that bucket then too. So it's like justification as soon as you commit like a sin, like. You're no longer justified every time. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. So there's nothing else aside from mortal sins that I'm aware of that causes you to lose the grace of God. In fact, there's one way of defining it that I think you can even find in the catechism, which is frustrating, of kind of a frustrating way to define it, but a mortal sin is defined as a great, I, I, but something along the lines of as a sin that causes you to lose the grace of God, <laughs> right? So it's like, well, thanks, that's helpful, you know? Um, but yeah, and it meets those three criteria, you know, the grave matter and full knowledge and, and, and consent. Um, so those are the things. But yeah, like it's, if you commit one, you're, you've lost the state of grace. So, I mean, you could be walking out of a confessional and commit a, commit a mortal sin. And there's definitely like, if you, if you listen to like, um, like Catholic proponents, like, you know, uh, whether they're apologists, people who are very involved in, like dialogue with evangelicals or other Protestants. Um, there's definitely a move to kind of soften a lot of this stuff, the way that they talk. So like they'll, om- will, they'll almost make it sound like in the highly unlikely event that you commit a mortal sin, then you have to go and confess it or something, you know, where it's not nearly. And then again, and also like if you did it and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to confession next Tuesday, that meets the qualification for you know, the desire to go and stuff. So like, it's not, uh, but I just think that that's a very unrealistic way to look at one's own sin. It's kind of, of the same type of like Christian perfectionism, right? Where like, you know, those branches, like particularly in the Wesleyan tradition, where you can actually, the Christian can actually get to the state where they're perfectly sanctified and will not sin, 
or they won't commit any known sin, right? And it's almost like you either have to really inflate your own righteousness in order to think that that's you, or you really have to lower God's standards of what sin is. You know, but like the greatest sin, you've heard me say this, I'm sure. The greatest sin, according to Jesus, not the greatest commandment, let's say, let's, let's phrase it positively, is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second, which is like it? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? You guys have been reading Leviticus 18. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Always read Leviticus. Um, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, that, like, I'm in mortal sin 99.999%. If that's the greatest commandment, and I'm violating the greatest commandment, like, I, I, can ne- I can almost never say I'm doing those things. Like, I don't know. It just sounds to me that, like, that this is a very almost, uh, almost profoundly unbiblical way to view human sin. You know? It's that laundry list view of sin. And even on that, it seems very unrealistic. Sorry, just one, one more quick question. Mm-hmm. I guess then... From the church's standpoint, or even like most Catholic theologians' standpoint, would they view Protestants like they definitely had, probably would say at some point we've all mortally sinned, and because we haven't absolved, like you know, yeah. gone through a priest, a priest for confession, what is, I guess, the most common viewpoint that they would hold as far as us is? Are we like viewed as unjustified? Frankly, oh, yeah. Frankly, I'm not. I'm not sure what they would say about that. I've not seen them address that specific problem, right? That we're baptized, so sure, but we've also probably also committed mortal sins, so what are Protestants supposed to do about it? There are categories in Roman Catholicism such as invincible ignorance, right? Or like, so like some of them might say, well, if you're, you've been raised in a Protestant home, you've thought this the whole life, and like God's not going to hold you as accountable as he would as a Roman Catholic, you know, um, and uh, like the, uh, the, I sat down with a priest to talk about one of these things and uh, about that, that, actually that very issue, like what would you say about my salvation? And he was like bending over backwards to, you know, affirm that I'm, he expects to see me in heaven and that I can partake in the, uh, the beatific vision. And, um, you know, like, but then also some, I leave it up to God. It's not mine to judge. You'll often get those answers. But that specific problem, I'm not aware of it being being uh, squarely addressed by by any Roman Catholic. Although, you know, maybe maybe it's out there. So, I have a okay understanding of how the Protestant Church understands this. Um, but it's verses like Matthew 19:24 that I'm curious on how the Catholic Church tends to interpret it, uh, and. For those who don't have that one memorized, it's um, it's easier for a camel go, uh, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and kind of what are some of the differences between Catholic interpretation versus uh, the larger Protestant church? Of that specific passage, I have no clue. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see. Is there anything I could think of that's relevant to that? Um, or even like kind of like more specific verses towards like right. than right. your general like daily turning. You yeah. Know, so I mean, I mean, the way cross. that I kind of view that is is I I view that as a lesson by Jesus on how 
material possessions and having a lot can really compromise your ability to walk with the Lord. I, 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 it almost reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians where he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am, right, the secret of being content. And then he goes, I know how to go without and how to have plenty, which is weird because I'm pretty sure I know how to have plenty, right? No, there's actually a Christian way that you have to learn to have plenty. Like that's a challenge. It's, just, it's a challenge, just like going without, so is having and so I think like that's kind of like what Jesus is teaching there, right? And, and maybe I think a lot of, you know, I don't know if I take that as seriously as I should. But I will say that among like, you know, Catholic saints and stuff like that, uh, poverty is seen as a virtue that especially like when, um, and you know, a lot of like, you know, like the, 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 the orders, the, the different orders, whether it's like Franciscans, Benedictines, Augustinians and stuff, right? A lot of these are, are based on these monastic movements, which really gain a lot of traction after Catholicism becomes like, you know, legal in the empire and then kind of like all the public buildings are owned by the church eventually. And then you get like a, right? And there's a lot of cat, like people who are in the Catholic church who are very uneasy with that. And who are like, how are we supposed to be Christians when Christians hold so much power? And they take to the deserts, you know? And they form these cloisters of monks. Some are men, some are women. And uh, they, live, they live out there. And a lot of them are very highly regarded and even sainted within the Roman Catholic Church. That there is a virtue to poverty. Um, now... There might be some truth to that, but the one thing that I would want to temper that with is what Paul says in Colossians, um, where, can I find it? Yeah, so, yeah, where Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 um, that, all right, uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, I'm starting in verse 20, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you still submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? In the same context, he talks about people going on, uh, insisting on asceticism, okay? Going on in detail about visions. And as I think we all probably know, there are a lot of very highly people revered in Catholicism's sacred tradition for exactly those things their ability to be severe towards their flesh. I live in the desert and only eat bugs or something, you know. Um, or I, you know, um, and, and I saw this vision and so everybody comes and, right? Like those are exactly, so while as, while I, you know, as with all things balance, I would say. So like, I'm not gonna say like, you know, let me go get a cheeseburger. Those guys are ungodly, you know. Uh, at the same time, I'm gonna be a little bit cautious for be, saying like, you know, people who live the monastic life of self-denial are models of, you know, true biblical uh, godliness, holiness. All right. 
We've been here a while, and I've been here since 7 a.m. So uh, if you do want to ask me a question on the way out, you can, but give yourselves a round of applause tonight. And uh, you guys are the hardcore. You're the hardcore. So, all right. See you next week. Thank you.